This is Guns and Butter. They talked about a periphery kind of kind of system, and that periphery system, even Ben-Gurion talked about, it's called the, the politics of the periphery. And if you see how Israel functions, you'll see that they pay a lot, a lot of attention to the periphery, which is the, the countries that are around the Arab, uh, the Arab land, which is uh, Turkey, Iran under the Shah, Israel, and, and uh, Pakistan. So those four countries would be what um, uh, the Nixon administration used to call the police on the beat, kind of, kind of the local gendarmes, if the people become so, uh, so dissatisfied with their facade, the local uh, leaders, and they will try to change him or rebel against him, then those people, those countries, will interfere to protect that system. And those countries should not be Arab because then it becomes easier for them to kill Arabs. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Shahada. Today's show, Empire and the Zionist Project. Michelle Shahada is a longtime Palestinian activist and one of the recently vindicated Los Angeles Eight. For the last 20 years, the U.S. government has accused him of being a terrorist. Along with six other Palestinians and a Kenyan, they were dubbed the Los Angeles Eight by the media. The case even made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. The charges involved accusations of aiding a member group of the Palestine Liberation Organization that the government alleged aided terrorism. But a Los Angeles immigration judge called the government's behavior an embarrassment to the rule of law. From the beginning, the Los Angeles Eight said that their case was a political one and that the government had made them victims of a political witch hunt. On November 29, 2007, the 60th anniversary of the 1947 United Nations Partition of Palestine, Michel Shahada spoke in San Francisco at an event sponsored by the Answer Coalition. His speech, The Palestine Liberation Struggle, Then and Now, follows. What's going on in Palestine is the confrontation of two narratives. And here we need to establish our own narratives because the Zionists have putting a lot of effort and they still are putting a lot of effort into taking delegations to uh, Israel so they can uh, brainwash the people into believing in that narrative. So there is a dominant narrative And there is the narrative of the Palestinian people, the victim, but the people who are still struggling for their rights and in return is not just their rights, but always uh, our rights because the whole thing is connected. Uh, The whole struggles is connected because we know the headquarters are in Washington, D.C. And where all these policies, whether domestic policies that are taking the milk out of our children's mouths here in our cities, or whether it's a Palestinian village uh, where a child could die on a checkpoint. It's the same policies that are oppressing all of us. And I was thinking how I'm going to approach this, because it seems that there is a lot of sometimes confusion, and people are connected to the question of what is a a solution to the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and 
here comes an event like the event in Annapolis and increase the, the confusion. And people get all absorbed in the details of one event and forget what the whole struggle is all about because there is no easy answer to these things because the Palestinian struggle has been going on not just for 60 years. Yeah, we, we commemorate 60 years of the Palestinian Nakba. That's a major historical marker in, in this struggle. But the Palestinian struggle has started way even before that against the Zionist movement and, and the thinking and the ideas and the concepts of, of the Zionist ideology. And this is before they won uh, to establish one of their objectives, because it's one of their objectives in 1948, uh, which has resulted in the, in the Nakba, the catastrophe, which we commemorate, and it's an important commemoration. So I thought I'll go back a little bit in history, because sometimes history is about narratives. And sometimes we think if it's 100 years uh, old history, that means it's not important. But believe me, little things and events and ideas that's been established then decided today. And when we go back in history, and I'm not going to go back in details, but talk about little historical markers and, and the ideas and what was going on to get to this point. Because when we get to Annapolis, we'll find that lots of those ideas when started in the 1880s coming all the way here, still with us, and we are still dealing with them. So basically, the idea of, of colonizing Palestine with uh, the Jewish buying into that colonizing did not start with the Zionist movement, but it started also in 1799 with Napoleon, because there was, if you go back and research, in 1799, Napoleon had published a proclamation inviting Jews to go back to their uh, historical land and uh, claim it back and started to colonize uh, the, the Palestine as a Western entity in, in, in the Arab East. And when he, when he did that, he did it because he was embarked himself on expanding the French Empire. So he didn't do it because he was feeling that this is the good thing or the right thing to do, but he was doing it because of his imperial project in Palestine. And he did it when he already had conquered Egypt and sent his armies with him at the head of his armies to Palestine and was taking the Palestinian villages and, and towns and, and cities then one by one until he reached Acre, Akka, which was then the capital of Palestine, and whoever controlled it then would have been able to control Jerusalem and failed there because, because the Palestinians have risen up against him and, and uh, were able to defeat him. So the idea of calling into the Jewish communities of, of Europe to come to Palestine was not, did not start with the, with the Zionist movement. But again, it looks like the objective conditions weren't ready. So in the, in the 1880s, after uh, that time when, when uh, Europe was, was uh, going, like in Russia or in Eastern Europe, when the pogroms against Jews were happening and, and uh, Jews were suffering from such anti-Semitism uh, in Europe, when the Nicholas III wanted to divert the attention and the anger of his own people against the conditions, economical, political, and, and uh, 
social conditions in Russia and the poverty and the suffering of the people, he used the uh, Jews using anti-Semitic ideas to get his own people to divert their anger towards the Jews. And, and they succeeded in that. So there were, there were the pogroms against the Jews and a lot of suffering happened then. And at that time, another organization started, which was the prelude to the Zionist movement, if you will, called the Lovers of Zion, which were calling into the Jewish community to escape from Russia and to go to Palestine to start to colonize Palestine. But they did not listen to, to the Lovers of Zion because most of these Jews who escaped went to Europe. And at that time, even one million Jews were, were uh, already settled in the United States, but they weren't going to, uh, to Palestine. Then at the end of, of, of the 18th century, in, in 1895-96, there was an, uh, an Austrian Jewish man from a middle-class origin who was an attorney and became and was appointed as the uh, editor or, or the reporter of, of uh, a newspaper in Paris to, to Vienna. went to Paris to report, and while he was there, the Dreyfus incident happened. And the Dreyfus incident is about a colonel, a Jewish colonel in the French army who was accused of, of being a traitor to the army and, and then became... At the, at the core of a political fight between the right wing and, and, and the liberal uh, uh, parties and political uh, establishment in France. And the right wing in France started to bring in again those anti-Semitic uh, ideas, using it to kind of agitate the people against, against the Jews and at the same time to kind of rally them around their ideas. So... Uh, you know, the, the ideas of that the Jew is not uh, a person that can be trusted and, and, and the Jewish community who are conniving to undermine the French uh, polity then was, was coming up. But eventually, uh, Dreyfus was released. But Theodore Herzl, the guy who uh, was reporting to the, to the newspaper as a reporter, came to the conclusion that anti-Semitism is an inherent character of, the, of, of, of human beings, that you cannot uh, accept Jews, you cannot stop hating Jews just when you're born. And the idea that Jews cannot assimilate and live with other people but, but Jews uh, got hold of him, so he said that we need to look for a country of our own. So he wrote a pamphlet called The Jewish State, and in that pamphlet, he outlined his ideas of that anti-Semitic cannot be overcome and that Jews uh, should establish their own country. But he wasn't really connected to any particular uh, piece of land or country at, the, at that time. You know, he just wanted any land to, um, to establish that, that uh, project of his. Because also he thought that that project should not be based on religion but should, she, uh, should be based on connecting that project to an imperial project. Because you know? that, that the time was the dawn of, of imperialism, especially uh, in, in uh, Western Europe, when they started to uh, you know, uh, acquire uh, more wealth, and they wanted to expand their domination, and they were uh, going beyond their borders, looking for countries to, uh, to, um, to conquer 
for resources and for markets and, and uh, for raw material. So Theodore uh, Herzl was uh, looking into that when the, in 1897, the first conference, a Zionist conference in Basel was established and the conference adopted the pamphlet as their political manifesto and elected Herzl as their president and he was given the task of looking for an imperial power that uh, would, would uh, support the Zionist project and will, will, uh, so they can connect to it and find that land or that country that, where they can build their own Jewish state. And uh, so he went, traveled, he went to the Ottoman Empire first and, and talked to the Sultan of Turkey then uh, about, you know, if uh, uh, Abdul Hamid, I think his name was Abdul Hamid, Sultan Abdul Hamid, he talked to him about if you give us Palestine, then, and, and, and the strange thing is, he used the negative stereotyping that was uh, perpetuated by the anti-Semites then, that you know, the Jews are the rich people, they understand money, and, and they have this talent about, about uh, managing money. And he used that with, with, the, with the Sultan by, by offering him that if the Sultan gives Palestine to the Zionists, that the Jews will help the Sultan in the financial management of the empire. Uh, and, you know, when the Palestinian delegates in the Ottoman Empire raised their voices and, and it looked like this is not going to be uh, easy for the Sultan to uh, give them, so publicly he did not offer the Zionist movement that. And again, Herzl went and met with the German uh, Kaiser, the uh, imperial uh, guy of, of Germany, but they didn't have anything to offer him. So, uh, you know, Britain was the destination of the focus right here. And uh, Britain at that time were, uh, you know, if you read, you know, uh, some of the literature of, of, of Britain, and, and I just read uh, a quote of somebody, one of the architects of, of Imperial uh, Britain, he said that he went to one of the meetings of the people uh, who were hungry in the working class in, in, uh, in Britain. And he said that when he got out, the people there were just asking for bread, bread, and bread. And he said that he concluded when he got out of that meeting that we need for the survival of England to go get more land so we can get the surplus of the people, of the British uh, people, into those lands and, and to open markets. So it was, uh, you know, the beginning of formulating those ideas of, of imperialism at, at that uh, moment. And this is when Herzl uh, found some fertile grounds to start uh, perpetuating and, and, and advocating for his ideas and lobbying, see if he can get support. You're listening to Michelle Shahada, one of the vindicated Los Angeles Eight. Today's show, Empire and the Zionist Project. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The British then got hold of, of the uh, ideas of the Zionist movement because also what happened in, in, in England at that time, there was a, a very comfortable, uh, if you will, uh, assimilated Jewish community. But, but then when the Jews from Eastern Europe started to come into, into uh, England, and uh, with, you know, they looked different, they had different accent, uh, the, the Jewish community that was assimilated, like the Rothschilds and, and, and others, felt that uh, you know, this is might 
uh, kind of agitate or, or create the anti-Semitism that they thought they, they got rid of it in, uh, in England, and they wanted to channel those immigrants or, or those newcomers to a different destiny. So England offered the Zionist movement Uganda, and, and uh, Theodor Herzl got really enthusiastic about the idea because in the sixth convention, he started to advocate for the, the uh, Ugandan option to build a Jewish state. But then the Jews of Russia refused because to them it, it had to be Palestine and because they thought they wouldn't be able to kind of rally the Jews of the world around the project if it wasn't Palestine because of its biblical connections. So uh, Theodore Herzl lost and, and Palestine from then became the focus because everybody agreed. And when uh, Wiseman, when uh, Herzl died and Wiseman took over the Zionist, uh, at the helm of the Zionist uh, uh, movement, uh, he moved to England and became uh, advocating, rallying, and lobbying to connect the Zionist project more and more into uh, the British aspirations, uh, imperial aspirations. And, and there, is a lot of there is a lot of communication between uh, Herzl and Cecil Rhodes, who was one of the architects, because the British, when they started to, uh, you know, gearing up to move outside their borders, they uh, established this office called the Colonial Office. And, and most of the best thinkers came into, into this uh, office, strategizing, putting the plans for building the empire. And one of those people was Cecil Rhodes, who was interested so much in Africa, and who led an expedition to the South Africa to uh, the first, and then moved into Zimbabwe. And, and um, you know, when, when they got Zimbabwe, changed its name to uh, Rhodesia after his, uh, after his name. Theodore Herzl have written to this guy trying to tell him that the Zionist project is an imperial project and, and told him that's why the uh, British should support the Zionist movement because in essence this is what the Zionist movement is, an imperial project, is a colonial project and, and he used those words. He said, why should you support um, the Zionist movement when it's not about Africa? It's about Palestine when it's not about the English uh, man, but it's about Jews, because in essence, we are imperial. And uh, that uh, was established really clearly. Also, in, in the pamphlet, he talked about the Zionist movement going to Palestine and building the front line for the West against the barbarians. So connected that with imperialism, the Zionist project, but also carried with it this superiority of uh, Europe over, over the, uh, uh, the rest of the world, but specifically Asia and, and Africa then. Because uh, the, the connection that this is a, a white man's project that is going to the uh, barbarian people who, uh, who are not civilized, and that's a part of uh, the duty of, of the European man uh, to, to take the Bible and to take civilization into those places and to teach him how to become human beings, basically. So World War I happened then, and while this has been happening and the alliances between the, the Zionist movement and the British was happening, also 
the uh, French and, and the capitalist country of, of Europe were fighting am among themselves about who's going to you know, take more, uh, a bigger slice of the world to, uh, you know, to build their empire. So World War I happened because of this conflict between the capitalist countries. And Germany and, and uh, Turkey uh, and Russia were on one side and, and uh, the rest of Europe were on, on another side. What the British wanted to do is to convince the Arabs to kind of rebel against the Ottoman Empire and promise them that if they do this on side with the, with the British, then the Arab countries would be independent. And the sheriff of Mecca, who was an ambitious sheikh uh, at, at that time, uh, kind of, uh, th that was some of his plans. So the British by the uh, guy called Sir McMahon, who was the governor of Egypt, have corresponded with, uh, with uh, the sheriff of Mecca about this project. And the promise was if, if the Arab will revolt, then at least the Asian part of the Arab uh, land will be independent and the sheriff will be uh, put as the king of, of, uh, of the Arabs. At the same time when this was happening and the promises of Britain were going on, the British and... The French were also having their own secret talks, uh, and uh, they reached an agreement, you know, which is well known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, is how to divide the Arab world among themselves. And within that agreement uh, and, and that plan, they've always uh, promised the um, Zionist movement that Palestine will be giving to them. And that was a secret agreement because they didn't want the Arabs to know that, that what's happening. But what happened is when the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, uh, which basically uh, five days it happened after the Balfour Declaration, which is the declaration or the promise of the British to the Zionist movement about giving Palestine to them, five days after that, the, the Russian Revolution uh, happened and all the treaties and all the uh, things that were, were uh, signed uh, were uh, exposed and uh, the people knew the Balfour Declaration and the Palestinians uh, got hold of it and started to know that there is a plan not to free the Arabs even after uh, the uh, Arabs have, have revolted against the British. And, you know, we've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia that, that really talked about that period when the British sent... Lawrence of Arabia, and you know they made him the hero, of course, in the movie. He led the revolution, and he was the hero. And uh, if it wasn't for him, then the Arabs would not be able to, to do this. But actually, the, the Arabs were able to reach Damascus and at um, the same time when the British entered Damascus then. But the plans came, you know, became clear. Syria was given to the French. Iraq... Because also, I wanted to mention something. The oil at that time began to uh, appear in the, in the area. And, and Britain realized, because World World War was, were using tanks and, and airplanes, that the importance of, of oil uh, was, was beginning to, uh, for the reason of war, beginning to become clear. So they wanted to take the Mosul, which is now in southern Iraq. We all know Iraq now, so we can talk about regions. The Mosul, which is the south of Iraq, the oil fields of south of Iraq, were uh, given to, um, uh, to the British. 
Palestine were promised to the Zionist movement. Jordan was given to the son, one of the sons of, of the sheriff, uh, the one who made the deal. Because when, when the sheriff started to communicate with, with Britain and tell them, what's going on? You promised us, and now you're reneging on us. They, the, you know, they negotiated with them again and said, okay, we'll give you Syria. We'll give Syria to, uh, to uh, one of your sons. And then uh, France did not accept, and, and his name is Faisal. They moved him into Iraq and make him a king of Iraq. Then the eastern part of Palestine, which is now Jordan, Transjordan, was given to another son. And the nature of those leaders, those leaders were the feudal leaders then. That's all they wanted. So they, they uh, accepted what, what Britain gave them and, and, and shut up and didn't do anything about it. And um, the focus turned into Palestine to help uh, establish, quote-unquote, a Jewish uh, home, because in, in the Balfour Declaration, they talked about establishing a, a home for the Jews. But basically, if, if you go back and you look at the history, you'll see that uh, Ben-Gurion said from the beginning, everybody knew that it was, they're talking about a state. It wasn't like those immigrants are coming to find uh, a home for, for uh, the Jews. Also, uh, from the beginning, the Zionist movement did not want to come and share Palestine only they, they always talk there is always, always one state that's going to be a Jewish state and is not going to be in partnership with the Palestinians. Those quotes are there, and uh, I think Eder is, is uh, Dr. Eder, one of the leaders of Zionism, said that in, in a test, uh, when he testified very clearly. So the idea of establishing an only Jewish state was a central aim for the Zionist movement. They kind of uh, worked on the premise that this is uh, a land without a people to a people without a land. So they always denied that there is an existence of the Palestinian people all the way to Golda Meir when they asked her, you know, what are you going to do with the Palestinians? She said, what Palestinians? They never existed for her. And up to now, if you see what really is moving the central kind of uh, uh, idea of the Zionist states right now of Israel is to empty the, the Palestinians from uh, Israel uh, and to deny the Palestinians who've been ethnically cleansed in 1948 to come back. So the idea of not having Palestinians is, is central to them. Anyway, what happened is the British, and this is very important to what we're having now, the British were thinking about not just controlling the Arab world, but also building some modalities of control. So the idea which the United States inherited from the British in 19, uh, after World War II and perfected. But let, let's talk about, a little bit about those modalities of control that they, they established. Because when the British realized that they cannot control by force an army, the Arab land, so this, they talked about, and, and it was explained also in some of the colonial documents that have been declassified, uh, and they talked about building a facade regimes. This is local people. They're going to be uh, put in power. They had to be weak because they had to be dependent on uh, the, the imperial power. And in the same time, they had to be weak because they had to do what, the, what, what they are told. But in the same time, this weak regimes, the facade regimes, which is local people that are, are picked from uh, the merchant class and the landowner uh, owner class, uh, the idea that they are weak also 
kind of uh, became a dilemma for, uh, for the you know, British imperial power because they're weak, they cannot control their people, and their, their people are barbarians and crazy. If you give them uh, the choice, they always choose the wrong people, like what happened in Palestine. You give them democracy, you give them the elections, they elected the wrong people. So they didn't want that to happen. So they talked about a periphery kind of, kind of system, and that periphery system, even Ben-Gurion talked about, it's called it the politics of the periphery. And if you see how Israel functions, you'll see that they pay a lot, a lot of attention to the periphery, which is the, the countries that are around the Arab, uh, uh, the Arab land, which is uh, Turkey, Iran under the Shah, Israel, and, and uh, Pakistan. So those four countries would be what um, uh, the Nixon administration used to call the police on the beat, kind of, kind of the local gendarmes, if the people become so, uh, so dissatisfied with their facade, the local uh, leaders, and they will try to change him or rebel against him, then those people, those countries, will interfere to protect that system. And those countries should not be Arab because then it becomes easier for them to kill Arabs. And that, that uh, system was shaken when the Iranian revolution happened and the whole emphasis and the whole support that the United States were giving to the Shah to build that regime into being uh, a real gendarme and, and uh, police on the, uh, on the beat got, got really uh, confused. And now even you know, the, the uh, nuclear program that started at the time of the Shah, uh, by support of the West, now became the uh, you know, focus of the West to show how, how dangerous Iran is, while uh, the only change is just uh, the regime, and that regime did not go with uh, modalities of control. So we also, uh, you know, we've seen the attention now that is paid uh, to Pakistan, I mean, Pakistan is what's happening in Pakistan is really worrying the, the U.S. administration and the West in general because that's shaken also that role that uh, Pakistan is, uh, is playing in the, you know, the campaign against the war against terror uh, then, but also in, in that modality of control. In the 1950s when Nasser came to power in Egypt, we've seen how that played because France, Israel and uh, Britain attacked uh, Egypt because Egypt also kind of was not the facade that, the, uh, uh, that was supposed to be because those people should be weak but should be uh, dependent and not independent and Nasser kind of challenged that. You're listening to Michelle Shahada, one of the vindicated Los Angeles Eight. Today's show, Empire and the Zionist Project. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And if we look at Annapolis right now, we, can, we, we see that. We see Abbas and, and, and the Palestinian Authority being built and being uh, shaped and formed into that kind of structure. It's the local people who are controlled by Israel, the United States, and um, they... they supposed to do what they are told not to really reflect the aspirations or the interests of their own people. And this is how they're judged. If a local leader comes and starts to act in accordance with what their people are asking or their people's aspiration, then 
that becomes a dangerous leader that needs to be deposed or needs to be moved or uh, the language of regime change comes into play. This is the formula that, uh, that um, the imperialist function. They wouldn't even accept, uh, as they say in my community, they don't accept a half traitor. You know, they want a full trader. You cannot accept a 95% trader. They want a full trader. They don't even leave a uh, little space for, for those people to, um, to, to move. You just got to do uh, what, you, what, what you're told. Because also with this whole thing comes the racism and, and uh, the, the superiority that those people do not understand uh, their own interest. And when they make... Uh, the wrong move, like uh, electing Hamas, for example, when they're, when they're giving the choice, that's a proof that those people are not civilized, they're not grown yet, and we need to uh, be there to, to um, make sure that those crazies are not, uh, you know, t- taking, taking their own countries into a place where it's not good for them. So that, that appears in, in every uh, policy that, uh, that there is. But again, we go back to uh, World War II when the United States was getting into the scene. The United States inherited this modality of of control and perfected it more and more. And in 1967, when the the, uh, Arab countries that, again, the facade that's been established by by, uh, the United States uh, by Britain and, and inherited by the United States, couldn't kind of not do anything vis-a-vis Israel when it, when it took over Palestine uh, by war because of the pressure of their own people and they went to war. And of course, it wasn't a war. It was a pretended war and were defeated in six, uh, six days. The people of the region, especially the Palestinians, began to realize that if they don't take matters into their own hands, the Arab regimes are not going to do anything. And this is where the Palestinian organizations and the Palestinian Fidein movement, uh, Freedom Fighters movement, began to, to uh, uh, blossom. And when the PLO was established by, by uh, Abdel Nasser uh, uh, after uh, 1967 as a way that he wanted to kind of control those, those organizations, but in time, those organizations came to lead the PLO and the modern Palestinian struggle for uh, liberation since 1967 began. And, you know, if, if, if you will, within that uh, uh, organization, the PLO, were two school of thoughts, if I can summarize it, just to let you know what, what was going on. There's the people who said that we need to deal with the facts on the ground. So there is the... There is the uh, Jews who live in, in Israel right now, and there is the Palestinians who wants to, uh, to be liberated. There is the refugees who wants to go back. So the best kind of way to do this is to build a system where it's not based on what your ethnicity is or what your religion is and what, what, what group uh, that you belong to, but it, uh, but it would be based on citizenship so we can build a polity where uh, Palestine becomes a democratic state where everybody lives together, uh, free to uh, worship, uh, free to you know join whatever group uh, you will, or to be an atheist if you choose to be to be. But the, the idea of duties and and responsibilities would be based on citizenship of equality at at least uh, uh, before the law. 
uh, that that did not work well with uh, with of course with Israel and with some of the nationalist elements within the the uh, Palestinian uh, organizations of our school of thought, political thinkers who wanted to build also uh, a state where they can get to be at the helm of that state and and be privileged. So so the idea from the beginning, the idea of of a democratic state although it was advanced as a program for the PLO, but again, the, those people who were the remnants of the feudal, the feudal um, uh, sector, if you will, in, in Palestine, the merchant sector in Palestine, who joined within the, the, the PLO, because the PLO and, and most of the organization were led by the, the peasants and the refugees uh, at, at the beginning, but those people were, you know, just kind of within the movement, and in time, their thinking came into into uh, bec- become leading the Palestinian struggle. Also, within the PLO was was another school of thought saying that the liberation of Palestine should be a part of the Arab uh, struggle against Sykes-Pico. That this is how it started, as I I said in the beginning, that uh, Israel came into. Uh, as a part of an imperial project, as a part of Sykes-Pico, and then again, if we want to build, uh, you know, a, f- a free Palestine, it will be a part of dismantling this Sykes-Pico project. Because you have minorities in the in the Arab world. It's not just Christian, Jews, uh, and and other religions, but also you have uh, race minorities, ethnic minorities there, and the idea of of having a system where those minorities will have their own uh, freedoms in a a system was uh, also within the thinking of this group. But the other group wanted, you know, to talk about just Palestine as part of we need to liberate that piece of land. So the the struggle is not within an Arab context, but it is a Palestinian uh, struggle. And, and those people were at the helm of, of the PLO for, for, uh, for a long time. Now, if you, if you come and, and see the Palestinian project is being represented by people like Abbas and, and, and the people who are negotiating in Annapolis, you know that there is a big uh, a problem for that vision. But again, the idea of, that will lead us to the question of what is the solution there isn't no simple answers to this because this is a struggle. But again, we can say that the solution should be based on certain principles that we are all fighting for. The first should be based on justice. So the refugees who in 1948 were ethnically cleansed from their villages, from their cities, from their towns, and living in, in, in um, refugee camps under wretched uh, situations and suffering for, for the past 60 years, Justice for those should be at, at, at the core of, of any solution because that is what the Palestinian cause is. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, getting a state because it never was a state. A state is not really uh, for, for justice or for solving the Palestinian question. So if we focus on a state... So that, that never was the aspirations of the Palestinian people. It was the aspiration of certain elements within the Palestinian movement, but not there. Uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, you know, solve the problem. It would not bring peace to the, to the region. And again, even that, the Israelis are talking about a virtual state, not really a real state. 
you know, a state where you, you, might, have a, uh, you might have a passport, uh, you, you have somebody who is called the president, and you may have the flag, and, and we see Abbas doing the uh, guard, you know, when, when you go and check the guard, uh, you know, and, and walk like that, and he's happy. So this is what they want. But if you look on the ground, you know, Palestine has been, has been you know, uh, kind of isolated, becomes pockets, uh, because uh, if, if you look at the wall, how it first made the whole West Bank like, like a prison, if you look at the communities of the Palestinians have been pushed into, into pockets of communities, it's like you're looking at a piece of Swiss cheese where the holes are the Palestinians and the cheese are Israel. And, and uh, that is the solution. But even with that, they still have the dilemma of the, what they called the demographic problem for Israel because still within Israel, there is you know, one and a half million Palestinians. So what happens if you accept the premise that Israel should be a Jewish state? What happens to those 1.5 million Palestinians? So not only you deny the right of return for the Palestinians who are living in camps to come back, but also you kind of uh, put uh, 1.5 million Palestinians as a third or fourth class citizens, because you still have the Eastern Jews who are not as uh, uh, first citizens as, as uh, Ashkenazi, which is the... Uh, uh, European Jews, but those Palestinians will have never have the chance to to uh, to become equal citizens in in, uh, in this country, uh, which become only a country or a, a state for uh, for for the Jews. If you look at the way they're isolating the two communities from each other, the idea of separating the Palestinians in a virtual state and Israel to become uh, an only Jewish state and only Jewish roads, and only Jewish uh, settlements, then you're talking about uh, a conflict that will, will, will be just perpetuated for, for, for more years to come, and it will never, the, the solution will never be this um, two-state or one-state if the principles of uh, equality, the principles of justice uh, are there. Because it seems to me that the Zionist movement cannot survive as a movement unless it exists in a dominant state in the region. And that's where the idea of, of not able to deal, quote-unquote, with the demographic uh, question. You're listening to Michelle Shahada, one of the vindicated Los Angeles Eight. Today's show, Empire and the Zionist Project. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So when we talk about the right of return and the narrative of the Zionists comes back and say, well, this is another way of the Palestinians or the Arabs to destroy Israel. People here think is meaning those people are going to grab the Jews and throw them into the sea. When, when they talk about uh, a state that is democratic, then it becomes about destroying Israel, while in reality what those premises are is dismantling an apartheid that is being built in, in the region. The separation is not about the physical safety of the Jews in Israel, because the safety of, of the Jews of Israel, the safety of the Palestinians, the safety of anybody who lives there, is when you can build a polity that those people can, can live together, not uh, when you build an apartheid. Because the same kind of logic we heard uh, when 
we were struggling against apartheid in South Africa. You remember the talk about when if the blacks uh, and the Africans in South Africa take control of the country, then a bloodbath will happen. But that, that did not happen. And there is like, you know, some, some quotes that today uh, Almert uh, talked about in, the, in that regard. Some of those quotes will, will clear how the Zionists still think today as they thought at the first time when they started to think about colonizing Palestine. So the narrative that the right of return is central to the Palestinian struggle should come out. And we should explain to people that it's not really uh, about the physical e existence of the Jews in Israel. It's not at, at all uh, that actually it is to, to, to protect everybody in, in, in the region, but it is about dismantling a racist, exclusionist, settler, colonialist uh, system that is there, put there, to perpetuate a plan that was devised uh, during World War I called Sykes-Picot to keep the Arab people divided, to keep the Arab country divided for the benefit of uh, the imperial power. And today, the imperial power is represented in Washington by the policies of the United States government. So, again, if you look at how even the Sykes-Picot at these days is becoming problematic to the United States and Western Europe because even the uh, states, the 22 states that have been established as, as uh, a result of Sykes-Picot, some of them is becoming very strong even uh, to the comfort of, of, of the United States. So now the plan is to divide this more and more. And now the division is not around uh, virtual or, or uh, fabricated borders, but around tribal and uh, other dichotomies like Sunni, Shia uh, kind of dichotomies. So we see it in Iraq. Now you hear, it's not that uh, the Sunni and, and the Shia are Iraqi people. Now they're different kind of people who are fighting each other. And then you, ha you hear the Kurd and the Arab. So the, the plan of, of divide and conquer is, is, is being used to further fragment the Arab world so they'll be able to be able to dominate it and conquer it uh, more and more. Now, in, in Annapolis, it's very clear from anybody who watched what happened there in this, this failed piece of theater because it seems to me that is, is, yeah, we've seen it so many times. But, but that, it's not about peace, really. There is nothing about peace here. It's, it's basically about two or three things that's got nothing to do with the area. Nothing had to do with the Palestinians. Nothing had to do with, with what's going on there. First, it is to justify, in, in my opinion, that Bush will, will exist for another year as a president. And it's not really an accident that they said that within, at the end of two, uh, 2008, that they will reach a, kind of a, um, an agreement. So the, the date and, and, and uh, the Bush presidency going hand in hand. And the other thing is to build another, quote-unquote, a united front, like George Bush, the father, during the first Gulf War, when he built this Arab and uh, Western kind of alliance to, uh, against Iraq and under the pretext of, of liberating Kuwait uh, so they can destroy Iraq. Now it seems to me they're building another kind of coalition to destroy another country, um, a Muslim country, which is, which is Iran. So the, basically it is about building this front to uh, bring in Arab and, and um, Israel together 
with the United States to prepare the ground to, to uh, destroy uh, Iran. And again, we need to be kind of vigilant in explaining the real reasons behind Annapolis or any other kind of event where uh, you see that the, the aim is not really to uh, solve the problem because there is no solution to the problem unless you hear that justice will be solved. When they start talking about the right of the Palestinian to go back to Palestine, then that, that would be the time when we see a real solution coming because without that, Palestine and, and the conflict in the region would not be solved. No matter what happened, the, the uh, uh, right of return is central to all of this. And I would like to finish here and thank you for, for listening. I've been talking too much. And... Well, let me start with the second one because it you know, deals with uh, Annapolis. And I mentioned in my presentation that um, the, the modalities of control uh, has two, two faults to it. One is to get uh, local people put them at the helm of, of uh, you know, the, the political structure that they uh, establish. Those people should be weak, and they uh, shouldn't represent the aspirations of their, of their own people because, you know, they have to do what they're told. And, and those people, like Abbas and the authorities, are a structure uh, as such, and at the same time, it really is established to solve problems for the empire, for Israel and the United States, rather than to solve problems with their own people. And Annapolis and everything that they do is to solve their own problems. For example, Annapolis came at this moment because of the need that uh, the U.S. Uh, policy in Iraq and Afghanistan and the region is, is, and with Iran is really in trouble. And Annapolis comes to rally the Arab regimes and to create a sort of a united front against, against Iran like they did in the first Gulf War. And, and, and the question is about how Israel, kind of the support of the United States for Israel fits with, with the policies of controlling oil. Well, you know, it, it's like Spico of dividing the Arab country was established to keep the region weak, fragmented, in order to be able to control its resources. And Israel was planted right in the middle of it as a Western entity to keep the structure, this kind of structure. And um, so it, it keeps the resources of the Arab world going into, uh, into arms, not arms to defend their own people or their own country, but to defend the regimes. So the resources are siphoned back into the United States. First, they buy the oil, crude, then they sell it back to them products, but at the same time, they create this, uh, you know, war situations and tensions. So Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all of that, uh, you know, sell them back the arms, have the money uh, uh, to come in. And so Israel keeps that tension uh, going on there, but at the same time, it's there in case uh, a liberation movement some, uh, in Jordan, in Saudi Arabia, or in the Gulf region, any place that they rise to uh, take control of their own country and their own resources, Israel is there to intervene. Not just Israel, but Israel sometimes, you know, and a lesser extent, Turkey, Iran under the Shah, and, and uh, Pakistan. But Israel, the domination uh, or the focus on Israel to keep it the, the, most, the strongest regional power is because Israel 
other European entity can be trusted more than uh, those colored people, uh, quote unquote, uh, you know, browns and non non white, um, you know. So well, the the idea of of who should speak uh, on behalf of the Palestinian people, Israel from day one have targeted uh, the institution of leadership within the Palestinians, uh, and and any process that would would um, uh, lead to uh, you know producing leaders. I mean, real leaders that are connected to their own people and uh, to uh, their aspirations. So, if you notice, whenever there is a voice that that goes out, it'll be it'll be assassinated or or killed. There is 11,000 Palestinian cadre. Uh, the cream of the crop of the Palestinian people are in jail right now, being destroyed and 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 and, and tortured in, in in many ways. 11,000 of them. And if you go through the, the history, the assassinations of Palestinian leaders uh, and, and targeting them wherever they are was a policy of, of the Zionist movement. So at the moment, the, the idea of, of one person speaking on the behalf of the Palestinian people, I don't think it's even a good idea to have one, one person. But there is organizations and, and, and people who can speak. But I tell you, the best and the speaker for the Palestinian people, maybe a child in one of those refugee camps, if, if you go and talk to them, they'll, they'll really tell you exactly what the aspirations of their Palestinian people are. And they're the most eloquent in that regard, you know, right to the point and simple. There isn't one. And, and, and you know, comes back to this question of Abu Mazen, what Abu Mazen should do? I said she should go and put him, you know, himself on an aeroplane and leave Palestine somewhere. <laughs> Because he, he, he doesn't have anything uh, that he can give to the Palestinian people. He put all his people's aspirations and, and all of his people's interest in the basket of the United States. And that, that's why he's a loser in that sense. Just, just um, you know, that's a longer struggle. And if, if, he, if he's able by a miracle to do what, what his people wants him to do, then he wouldn't be Abu Mazen. Uh, it would be somebody else. But the idea is first to insist on the right of return. This is it. Second, to insist on the liberation of Palestine. Third, to insist that the Palestinian people and the, the Jewish Israelis can live together much better in, in, in a polity that is not based on racism and on separation. Because, you know, people are people. What, what's dividing us is a Zionist ideology, and that's what's in the way. So dismantle that system of, of colonial settler racism that, that exists. You've been listening to Michelle Shahada. Today's show has been Empire and the Zionist Project. Michelle Shahada is a longtime Palestinian activist and one of the recently vindicated Los Angeles Eight. The charges involved accusations of aiding a member group of the Palestine Liberation Organization that the government alleged aided terrorism. From the beginning, the Los Angeles Eight said that their case was a political one and that the government had made them victims of a political witch hunt. His speech, The Palestine Liberation Struggle, Then and Now, was given in San Francisco on November 29th, 2007, the 60th anniversary of the 1947 United Nations Partition of Palestine.
The United Nations vote and the war that followed created the state of Israel on 78% of Palestine, made refugees of 750,000 Palestinians, and led to a struggle which continues to the present. Michel Shahada is a research associate in the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Initiative in the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University. Thanks to Brian Becker, Gloria Lariva, Tina Landis, and Chris Banks of the Answer Coalition for helping with today's audio. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Release. You dig me?